Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Dialogue Central. I'm Iman. I'm Maha. I'm Elisa. And I'm Karma. And today we're going to be discussing To Read or Not To Read, where we have taken five of the greatest authors of all time, Charles Dickens, William Shakespeare, Jane Austen, Arthur Doyle, and Mary Shelley, and we're going to be discussing their impacts and whether or not we should still be reading them today. So shall we start off with William Shakespeare? So to start with, many people today still read William Shakespeare's work, and of course, we also have to study it in school. But is it really still necessary? Because after all, a lot of us laud William Shakespeare for his great original work and new stories, but are they really? I mean, if you take Romeo and Juliet, for example, well, it was, a, it was actually inspired by so many other pieces. And actually, out of he has written 38 plays and over 150 short stories. But most of these have not actually been his original work. He has taken other classic tales or folklores and adapted that into his own stories. Um, and the thing about Shakespeare is we love him for his originality, as Elisa said. But like Elisa is going to elaborate on, if we focus on the classic stories that um, Shakespeare's plays are based on, that would benefit students a lot more. For example, back to Romeo and Juliet, it was inspired by the poem Romeo and Juliette from Italy, also the Greek Pyramus and Thisbe, and the Arab Leila and Majnu. William Shakespeare talks a lot about love, particularly in Romeo and Juliet, but what I think is a bit unnecessary is the way Romeo and Juliet just suddenly meet and their fates are just all of a sudden inextricably linked till the end of all time. But doesn't it make more sense if you look at the old Arab tale of Leila and Majnu, how they really supported each other, how they were friends from childhood and that was what affected them. But if you take Romeo and Juliet, Romeo was already infatuated with someone else to begin with. Is that really a true reflection of true love? Exactly, and if you think about it, stories like these, especially Romeo and Juliet, are being taught countless times in every year in schools. And if you think about it, is this the kind of message that we really want to be showing to our children and our future generation? Especially since, if you ask English teachers, they will say that the reason Shakespeare still taught today is because of his new style or the fact that he's still popular. However, if you really ask us, we believe that they're actually older with the older generation. If you look at our generation and the generation that's in schools, a lot of them aren't that fond of William Shakespeare or even studying him at all. As personally, I tend to look at the more misogynistic ideas behind his stories than this great language that he's come up with. Yeah, and to elaborate on Amand's point, in one way, Shakespeare is timeless, but with negative connotations i.e. his misogyny, which is still prevalent in today's world. And I guess also to do with Elisa, this idea of an infatuation, a sudden inextricable infatuation, does foreshadow or mirror the modern love some teenagers have today. And although it is prevalent, again, it's not the message we want. So the question is, do we want to reflect the brutal and harsh reality of our modern world through Shakespeare and the fact that we haven't actually evolved from 400 years ago. And I mean, if you think about it, 
feminist women's rights, racial rights, etc. Mm -hmm. That's still all a giant struggle in today's world. In Shakespeare, that idea of sexism, racism, that's all still so prevalent. Now, if you ask me, the only really benefit I think you get from studying Shakespeare's work is that if you're able to understand his Shakespearean English, you have to be some sort of linguistic genius. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Another idea is that, at the very least, if we shouldn't, if we are still going to study Shakespeare, shouldn't we at least focus on some of his works that aren't as misogynistic or have better ideals or traits? I mean, for example, his long repertoire of books and plays include Hamlet, All's Well That's Underwear, and well, The Merchant of Venice, A Midsummer's Night Dreams, and Much Ado About Nothing, and so many other things. I mean, his work has been translated into over 50 languages, making him considered to be the greatest writer of all time. But as Eliza's already pointed out, and I think she's going to say again, is his work actually his own work, or is he sort of just adapting these other works? Um, adding on to that, Shakespeare's work was honestly a reflection of the time and the period and, of course, the monarch who was his audience. For example, for a long time, he actually wrote plays for Queen Elizabeth and most of those plays actually reflect her thoughts and feelings. For example, if you take... Um, his reflection of Richard III, that's all about the House of York and how the House of York are painted as awful. That's because, well, Elizabeth was a Tudor, so it made sense to paint Richard III, who was defeated at the Battle of Bosworth, in a bad light. And when James came to the throne, he made Macbeth seem a villain because it turned out that James's great, great, great ancestors were actually against King Macbeth at the time. So is that actually a true reflection of history or just the reflection of the view of the period? As much as I would love to bash William Shakespeare's work, I think we do have to give him some credit to the fact that it is because of him that the Globe Theatre was opened and that's one of the most renowned and historical theatres in the world. Um, and I also think, although Shakespeare's plays aren't original, um, they're still inspired by other plays. They do have a sense of novelty um, in that time and in modern day times as well. That contrast or juxtaposition between hate and love, for, for example, in The Tempest, or just really complex ideas that are still yet to be explored in modern day times. And I think that's another thing that makes us, or the teachers, English teachers, want us to study uh, Shakespeare. But at the same time, they need to realize that some of his views, although very, very futuristic for his time, are still outdated for modern day times. And that's what we need to realize and therefore work upon in order to include some modern day authors. Because if you think about it, if we use Shakespeare, that means that modern day authors aren't getting as much credits. So I think that in general, let's just agree on the fact that yes, Shakespeare's works could have been or were stolen, and that they are quite controversial. However, it's important to realize that, like many authors, he has his flaws. And while we shouldn't celebrate those, we should still accept the fact that he did bring about a lot of change, such as mm -hmm. you said, Maha Anuman, the Globe, the Globe Theatre. So overall, Shakespeare probably should not be taught in schools. However, that is not saying that we should rule out all literature or classics, however. I mean, especially since... I think that with older, for example, university level students where they have the ability to understand and point out 
this maybe was is because of the period of time. But for example, year seven, year eight, year nine, should we really be showing them these sort of misogynistic ideals by an author who's so celebrated? But the thing is, Shakespeare, although he had elements of misogyny, according to the time, he was very futuristic and forward-looking in terms of women's rights. And I think that's something that should also be celebrated, not only at a university level, but also at a younger age. And I think year sevens, eights, and nines should also be aware of that. Because if we completely forsake Shakespeare at a younger age, then those who found Shakespeare expiring probably won't find it inspiring anymore because it's non-existent. <laughs> I think we could dedicate a whole pod just to Shakespeare, but I think let's move on to our second author of this episode, Charles Dickens. Anybody want to start us off? Well, I guess we could start with the fun fact that I'm actually related to Charles Dickens. He is How so? Uh, he is my seventh great uncle, but wow. yeah. How did you find that out? My parents <laughs> and my grandfather. So uh, let's talk about some of the most notable works of Charles Dickens. So he has written over 15 novels, plus so many short stories, articles, historical books, etc. So some of his most famous works include Oliver Twist, Great Expectations, A Tale of Two Cities, and of course, A Christmas Carol. He's known for being a writer, social critic, and activist, which I really want to get into the activist part later. But in terms of the impacts of Charles Dickens... I think Charles Dickens has a really important impact, even nowadays, because mm -hmm. he really showed so many diverse personality traits throughout all his stories and really dived deep into human psychology and how we think, how we work, all our relationships. And most of that's still relevant today. I'm sure at least one of you at some point has almost felt like they related to at least one character in Charles Dickens at some point. Completely agree. And at that time, a lot of the characters, they didn't used to be one-dimensional, but at least close to one-dimensional. Um, and this idea of a multifaceted character who had flaws that somehow tied in to his, um, to his beneficial traits, that wasn't something seen before. And that's something that still needs to be observed through the human psyche, which Charles, Charles Dickens was the precursor to. But if we, again, if we want to talk about authors who completely changed the way we read, Charles Dickens is definitely one of them. Mm -hmm. Something that he did that has never been done before is he brought empathy to the poor children on the street, mm -hmm. to the workers in factories. All of his works... They started to portray the lives and the suffering of these people, and that sparked an empathy from the general public that had never been seen before. I completely agree. Another very notable point is how Charles Dickens, most of his uh, pieces, for example, The Christmas Carol, are focused more on key characteristics of mm -hmm. humans, such as empathy, as you said, Ron, and also the fact of simple things, such as Christmas cheer, shown in The Christmas Carol. And most of these are, and the plots are not based on ridiculing specific groups or uh, leading to radical specific groups, but more so, more of a society group, or if not that, then for ridiculing the main character and noticing his flaws, and then the resolution would be mm -hmm. uh, resolving those flaws and showing how you can improve your, I guess, moral dignity. 
Yes, and adding on to that, I think Dickens actually used a lot of the real world surrounding him to inspire his actual stories. For instance, Dickens himself started off quite poor. His father was sent to a debtor's prison and he had to suffer for that through his childhood. He worked at a boot polish factory. He had to actually go through hardship. And I think that's why such raw emotion was portrayed in his stories, because in a way, he almost felt that too before he became famous. You're so right, Eliza, and this idea of a wealth disparity being one of his key themes throughout almost all of his books, it's so raw and emotional, like you said, because of the really personal anecdote which he's experienced. And I feel, in a way, the reason why we can all relate to his characters is because he himself finds a tiny bit of himself within every one of his characters. I mean, going on from that, he mm -hmm. brought awareness to the conditions of people in poverty, people in factories, people in the mines. Mm -hmm. it, the list goes on, which that's still so relevant today because there are, as though, although it's not as widespread as it was in Charles Dickens' era, there are still millions of people today who live in that poverty, who suffer in those factory conditions. Like... Just because he wrote these books in the 1800s doesn't mean that people don't still experience those things that his characters mm -hmm. experienced back then. I completely agree. Another notable point that I don't think Charles Dickens is mainly known for is actually his development and his contribution to medicine. In 1836, he published an installment of a book and he introduces a character who is obese, he's sleepy, difficult to wake up, and actually has a profile edema. And that actually sparked a lot of controversy and sort of hypothesis about profile edema, which actually helped the development of specific treatments and medicines. And even 120 years later, after it was published, I guess today, is still helping sort of the, mes the oh, medical wow. field. And you don't actually see, especially pieces of literature that were not that were fiction, actually helping the medical field so or a STEM field. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, the contradiction between literature and science somehow intertwines to find a new medical breakthrough. Exactly. I mean, after the research I did on him, even I didn't know about that. But another thing that's not as well known about Charles Dickens is the fact that he was such a social activist that he was one of the people who stood up and they said, I think we should all be equal. I think that we all deserve rights, etc. Did Actually, he do this uh, in terms of race and ethnicity or just wealth? Both. Both. Which is uh, the, his racial, like, uh, when, he was when he was an activist for that, it's not as well known because he mm -hmm. didn't do that as much as he was preaching for the poor to be right, treated the same as the rich. because ethnicities aren't as prevalent. Exactly. Yeah. And actually, one of the biggest things that is a direct cause of his work is that he closed down, the, his work closed down the Yorkshire boarding schools. Mm -hmm. Now, these are schools that kept children in terrible, borderline abusive situations. Mm -hmm. uh, but the parents didn't know that. They weren't paying close. It's because he brought light to these terrible conditions in his work that these schools were shut down. I think talking of bringing light to things, I think Charles Dickens really opened people's eyes to what was going on. For example, if you take Christmas Carol, he actually mentioned, oh, the two children of mankind are ignorance and want. So it almost educates people that these are negative traits that happen because of greed and selfishness. And through his characters, he's almost teaching people what not to do, what not to, how not to treat people. And that's still really prevalent today. So I don't see why we can still learn lessons from him. Yeah, I understand that. And I also, the thing about Charles Dickens, uh, Dickens is the way he writes 
it's very witty and humorous. So unlike Shakespeare, arguably, he's a lot more entertaining to read. And therefore, you can still include him in today's specification because students will actually enjoy reading. <laughs> exactly, I agree. And also, I think it's very notable about his works and just how he mm -hmm. acts and his impact in general is how, if you think about it, Charles Dickens, he was white and he was a man. Mm -hmm. And inside, although he was poor, he rose and eventually became one of the wealthiest men in England at the time. But it's amazing how even with that wealth and the possible greed that he might have acquired as a man, he could, he still stayed true to his core beliefs and he still wrote about the systemic uh, injustice happening to uh, genders and both ethnicities and social classes. Mm -hmm. And I mean, something that all of you have mentioned is that his writing, the way that he portrayed his characters, they, he brought them to life so much, which is something that hadn't been done before. Like if you look throughout his work, he went into so much detail with his characters and he provided backstories and it is part of that that he was so influential because he really went into that. For example, Little Timmy from A Christmas Carol. Mm -hmm. People were so moved by the way that he described Timmy that that actually, it brought so much awareness to the children on the streets, to all of that. Yeah, in a way, people who are seen as a lower class aren't usually seen as humans. They're dehumanized. And this portrayal of Little Timmy... Um, it brought human and um, empathy towards his character, like you said, Iman. Mm -hmm. And in that perspective, it changed the entire perspective of how wealth disparity is viewed and how people who aren't, um, people who aren't, people who aren't viewed as rich um, aren't seen as inferior, but more unlucky. So I think we're all 100% in agreement that Charles Dickens has done so much good with his work, and it's definitely something that should still be studied today. Something that we've brought up a lot is how his strong character development is one of the reasons why his work is so notable. Another author that we're going to be discussing today, Jane Austen, is also known for her strong characters. Jane Austen is known for of making these feminist characters, but it was something that the male audience of her time still read because while she had these really feminist, strong female characters, she still created, portrayed them in a way where they weren't overshowing the masculine, strong characters. Like they were still very much prevalent in her books. And that's one reason why her books were so popular in people of all genders, ages, ethnicities, etc. And I think that especially contrast to, I guess, Shakespeare and his portrayal of love stories and, for example, one of her most famous works, Pride and Prejudice, it shows, yes, a love story that was successful in the end, but it shows the two characters overcoming their biases and their, I guess, uh, conflicted moral beliefs together to uh, be together and fall in love. Whereas with Shakespeare, it was more overcoming the social beliefs, but not exactly in a way that we would accept or, I guess, would be, I guess, in a way proper today. I think adding on from that, Shakespeare took a more romanticised approach, mm -hmm. whereas with Jane Austen, she really had almost r real characters, characters that seemed as though they truly lived within the pages, they truly had problems, issues that people could relate to, and that's why it's down to mainly her writing. As Professor John Mullen of Lord Northcliffe Modern English Literature at University College, London, said, 
It's more about the way she writes, the way she handles these topics, because even other female writers wrote about similar concepts, but it was the way she actually portrayed them that made her so significant. Exactly. And in a way, that's very similar to Charles Dickens, because the idea of having characters who are so well-developed and not in the terms that they're perfectly polished, but are multifaceted. And the idea or the difference between Shakespeare and Jane Austen is that instead of making a romanticized, as you said, and um, creating women as solely side characters or uh, durotinists, they're more main characters with an introspective belief or an introspective journey of how they're going to explore their sexuality, their their journey in terms of um, um, materialistic jobs as well. And it wasn't just about them being a side character to a man, but more their independence. And that's what differs from other female writers during that time as well. I mean, just like Charles Dickens, Austen throughout her six books, explored themes of family conflict, money issues, like I said earlier, romance. These are all things that weren't as written about beforehand. Like, of course, we can go into any bookshop today and pick up a romance novel or pick up a book that's all about struggle or family issues or etc. But in that time and the way that she wrote about it with such depth and complexity and the fact that it actually took off because of the way she wrote it with those strong characters on both sides so that she appealed to both audiences... Mm -hmm. She was nothing but a good role model in terms of her literature works. And the thing is, I'm glad you brought this up. She only wrote six full-length novels. Exactly. <laughs> and that just means she created such a, a big impact with such little writing. I mean, she just, like you said, she just wrote six books. Those six books mm -hmm. managed to inspire and give her a fan base of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of people while she was alive let alone the millions of people that adore her in our modern times and she was walking quite uh, a thin inextricable line between being controversial which she no doubt was and being outright outright an, an iconoclast rude. yeah and a rude exactly i think that another key point about how the characters are multifaceted is how not only it portrays an amazing uh sort of role model for young girls, even that time, but also in a way for young boys. Mm -hmm. Yes, the novel was very controversial. Not many people listened to it, like many, I guess, controversial medical ideas back in that time. But it, the way that she writes the characters, not only is having their struggles, but making the book about exploring their struggles mm -hmm. and overcoming their own, as the book says, pride and prejudice to be together, really shows how she can work in this love, this, I guess, in a way, classism, the a way that she portrays the characters as having ignorance and showing their flaws and making them sort of overcome them together. And that is the main point of the book. It's mm -hmm. quite amazing. I'm glad you brought up her time because Jane Austen was alive during the eight, late 1700s, the, uh, I mean, and the early 1800s. And it's because of that, that like Mary Shelley, who we'll be getting into later, she had to publish her books under a pseudonym, a male name. It was her writing it, but it appeared to everyone else as, as, as this male write, author writing them. And I think that's a really key factor into why her books were so taken so seriously, because everyone assumed this is a male author. Somehow he's in touch with his feminist side, yet he still portrayed these really mm -hmm. big strong male characters and I think that's one reason why why her books under the pseudonym wasn't ostracized and wasn't made fun of 
And that's why it was embraced and made more credible. Exactly. It provides a sense of irony because the fact that this feminine side is embraced by a man, um, just it. Now we realize how silly that notion was. Yeah, I mean, even nowadays, now we really um, understand Jane Austen for who she was rather mm-hmm. than just her male pseudonym. Mm-hmm. But so she's even on one of the pound notes, for example, which is kind of a rare thing. You don't, not everyone gets to be on a pound note. Yes. Exactly. And how I, th- I think that a key point is how. While it's very sad how she had to write under a pseudonym of a man, mm-hmm. I think that I, all of us in this room, and millions of other fans are glad that even if it was under a male name, that she gained the uh, famosity and the respect that she deserves. Especially mm-hmm. since now we do know that that was actually Jane Austen writing them. Imagine all the male works and pseudonyms that were never like uncovered to actually be a pseudonym. All those female authors who put in all that effort and time only for them to never actually get their credit. Right. Exactly. And I think that as a, for example, as a young girl, I read Pride and Prejudice and I loved it. And it sort of inspired this in me. And another book that I really loved was Frankenstein, who was written by author Mary Shelley. So Mary Shelley, again, lived during the late 1700s and the early 1800s. And she is possibly one of the most famous females to use a pseudonym. Now, she wasn't going to get published. She tried publishing Frankenstein under her name, but it just wouldn't happen, which is why she had to convert into using the male pseudonym that she did for Frankenstein. I think Mary Shelley's work is so particularly important because she's deemed as one of the first ever science fiction writers, and she really covered new frontiers of science, trying to create create life, almost. And I think... At a time now when so many new things are happening at such a rapid pace and we're discovering so many new scientific things and we're trying to use technology to do new things, we should really consider her work because she really dove into the ethical implications and the way society treats this new creation. And the thing is, what's so interesting about that is that, like you said, she was an author who wrote about science or science fiction. Her pseudonym was William Godwin, her father, but he was known for being a political writer. He was a philosopher. He wrote a lot of um, political philosophy. And the fact that he was now branching, or him, he was branching into this sort of scientific fiction, which, first of all, hadn't really been done uh, to the depth and to the extension that Mary Shelley did. It's really something that's fascinating because it took off so much. And I think that a story for you viewers that if you didn't know about is how it's so clear how misogynism was shown in that time. That actually originally people thought that Frankenstein was written by Mary's husband, Percy Bysshe Shelley, who uh, in actually stole the credit from her wife, from his wife, of writing Frankenstein. People believe that for many years, although if you've read the book and analyzed it for, I guess, a very short amount of time, you could tell quite clearly it was written by a woman with these ideals and it was definitely not written by her husband. And I think this idea or notion of Frankenstein was very important because they expected him to be the paragon of an excellent creature or the perfect human specimen. And in reality, what they found was that he was, in society standards, a hideous creature. And I think that mirrored some of the outcasts or outliers of any society. 
and how they, although they may have an amazing personality, which I know is cliche, they are immediately outcasted because of their appearance. And that's mirrored directly, but definitely hyperbolically through Frankenstein. I mean, I don't think it's a surprise to any of us or any of the listeners that those beauty standards that women were subjected Mm -hmm. to in this time were so severe and so you have to look like this or else you're not going to get a husband. And that was women's main goal in life. Get a husband, have kids. Nowhere in that did it say have so much knowledge on science fiction. Mm -hmm. Did it say become a writer, be a feminist, any of that. And the fact that Mary Shirley did all of that and then only had her husband steal her work. Yes. Like, it's quite sad. But also, like you said, it Frankenstein brought out such an important message. Like, when he had gone to see that death of that blind girl in the cottage, mm-hmm. she didn't know that he was ugly. She didn't know what she looked like. But it's from the kindness of his heart that he had gone there and that he didn't hurt her or anything. But because of his looks, none of that was actually seen. Right. Um, just a quick fun fact, actually. Um, Frankenstein was the name of the doctor rather than the actual monster, though everyone thinks it's that. And I think that distinction is also quite important because the monster was only ever known as the monster, an anonymous mm. creature that didn't was almost dehumanised so by society. Ostracized, so ostracised that the wasn't even named. Even You're so- like he was just known as Frankenstein's creature. No name, no nothing. And you read my mind, I was just about to say that when you mentioned it. I think that also, in a way, it represents the way that, uh, especially the very steep beauty standards that occurred in that time and also still today, but in a different scenario. But the way that uh, the the monster was sort of dehumanized and very pointed as a subject or a monster sort of shows how, in a way, outcasts or any sort of people that do not fit the conventional beauty standards or social standards were just that they were an outcast. They weren't a misunderstood human. They weren't a ugly person, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. And it sort of compares the way that, in some cases, this might be hyperbolized, but uh, some people who were, I guess, ugly or just not, not fit the conventional beauty standard or even out of a place of racism, so they were just black or brown, they mm-hmm. were called ugly. They were called monsters mm-hmm. and sort of these demons. And that really shows the... Uh, beauty standards and both just racism in that time. I mean, something that was so prevalent in that time and the time before that, and even for some periods of time after that, are the circus freaks. The freaks of the circus. People such as, I'm sure we've all heard of the Elephant Man, who were put into these circuses and they were laughed at and they were mocked and they were dehumanized just because of their looks. Frankenstein, what Mary Shelley wrote, that, that actually brought so much sort of comfort to these people and they were like maybe not everybody hates us maybe we're not just looked at because our looks sure that is the wide majority but there are those people out there like mary shelley or william godwin who saw us for not just being our looks and how we are so much more than that and a peculiar link to studying uh, Mary Shelley and therefore Frankenstein in today's time is this i know it sounds really strange but this idea of creating robots And Frankenstein in today's world was basically a robot. And I think it's very important to study texts like Frankenstein because it draws a parallel to this idea or controversy of should robots or AI, machine learning, 
be be accepted or be embraced by today's society or feared. Exactly, and it's uh, this might be going a bit off topic, but I was doing a debate the other day, and it's about uh, should we upload our consciousness? As in, when you die, mm-hmm. should your mind be uploaded so you can communicate? And would that sort of challenge the idea of immortality? And mm-hmm. also, I think in general, it's quite fascinating to think about how many old uh, sci-fi movies, or I guess just in general literature, that talk mm-hmm. about this. I guess, as you said, robot or creating a superhuman or an immortal person. It's actually happening to an extent today and how mm-hmm. uh, it could be either frightening or quite amazing about how we've actually achieved what would be seen as the impossible 200 years ago in literature and fiction. I mean, another fun fact about Mary Shelley is that she was actually a prolific writer. A writer. What a prolific writer is, is it's a writer who's commissioned or just for fun writes large numbers of works. And our final author for today, Arthur Doyle, was also a prolific writer. In fact, he has written over 200 novels, short stories, poems, historical books, pamphlets, you name it. But what he's most known for is his four novels and 56 short stories about Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. So, Sherlock Holmes. I mean, who hasn't heard of Sherlock Holmes, most famous detective of all time? It's been adapted so many times. And his partnership with Watson was just exceedingly important. The fact that it was actually Watson who related all the stories so that you didn't actually see the inner workings of Sherlock's mind until the very end so you could share the surprise and excitement when it's finally unravelled along with his friend, Dr Watson. In a way, it's sort of like a Batman-Robin relationship just a really long time ago. (laughs) Exactly. I agree, and also I think that I love Sherlock and uh, I've watched Sherlock Holmes and the movies and everything. But I think that one of the key points is how one thing that Arthur Doyle did a lot that I really admire is how he sort of made uh, Sherlock Holmes a figure of sort of strength but in the mind. And in his time, he sort of portrayed uh, sort of, I guess, the strength of a man as his wits and sort of using his knowledge over a brute force or just strength, which is what was very common in those days. And he sort of uh, he sort of just made the idea and the concept of being known for your wits entirely and not your wits, for example, a war or just brute force in general. That was quite amazing. I agree. And his ability to draw conclusions within seconds, which people or detectives would take months, maybe years to do so, that just brings an intrigue to the reader, which many people, especially in the past, couldn't conjure up. So that's another talent of Arthur Conan and Doyle. I mean, so many beloved characters today have been adapted from books Mm -hmm. into movies, into films, cartoons, comics, whatever you want to name it. And one of the first characters to ever be adopted into this sort of media, different version of media, is Sherlock Holmes and Watson. All of that comes back to Arthur Doyle. So Sherlock Holmes, he was a detective. Yes, he didn't exactly show that much emotion. He thought that you should just focus on the logic, just the facts in front of you, and not put emotion into it. And I suppose that isn't quite how people are nowadays. But in that same way, because he didn't really have that much of a distinct emotional personality, he was almost a vessel for other writers to spring their ideas into. You could adapt him so easily because... He's so pliable, there's so much he can do with his character and add to it. 
I mean, I'm so glad that you brought up his character and his emotion because something that uh, we think uh, Doyle did this unknowingly, but Sherlock Holmes was actually like he is on the ASD spectrum. And that is something that still today isn't talked about as much as it should be being neurodivergent, especially not in the time when Arthur Doyle wrote Sherlock Holmes, which was in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Back then, being neurodivergent or having any type of mental illness was essentially a hush-hush. So the fact that one of the greatest characters and detectives and people looked up to of all time is actually on the ASD spectrum, that's brought up so much awareness for people with ASD, ADHD, and other mental illnesses. Yep. Um, and it also emphasizes the independence which ASD people can have. Because right now, there's this idea that people with neurodeficiencies um, have to be in some sort of house, have to be taken care of, because they may be talented in one specific element, but in the social realm, they just can't handle it. So we need to understand, especially through Sherlock, that that just isn't the case. They are just as independent and in some ways can fathom things way faster and way more efficiently than any of us. Which I'm glad you brought that up because I just want to say one quick more thing. I misspoke. It's not mental illness. They mm -hmm. can be independent. It's a mental disorder, which mm -hmm. is just one quick thing that I wanted to clarify. Yeah. And I think this is just coming from a stance of pure uh, admiration for Arthur Doyle and Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. But I think that one thing I really like is how, dare I say, he pioneered the witty humor and how that mm -hmm. was integrated into literature as time went on. Because Sherlock Holmes, he's known for his wit, but also his witty humor, as I said before, and sort of the um, almost bickering and banter between mm -hmm. uh, Sherlock Holmes and Watson. I think that's really admirable about how you can bring, because of course humor in uh, that time was very focused on ridiculing a certain group or right. uh, race or, or gender. Mainly the, the way that he uses witty humor that doesn't exactly harm anyone, but mainly uh, just uses facts and states of matter as his humor, which is very interesting. And in a way, I think we're all Watson um, in this situation. <laughs> Sherlock is the genius, the the prodig the prodigal, but we're just Watson, and that's just what that's what makes it so relatable because we have a character who's almost a bridge to the chasm between our normal minds and his genius. Exactly, and I also think one of the greatest achievements of Arthur Conan Doyle is not only the characters mm -hmm. of Watson and Sherlock Holmes, but the intense atmosphere he creates. Right. As soon as the thick rolling fog in the middle of the grey smog of Victorian London is mentioned, you kind of get this exciting chill and you instantly delve straight into the story because it's the amazing atmosphere that's so important. It's sort of linked to Sherlock Holmes, like that's his signature thing. I mean, what we've really been doing here is trying to talk about who are these authors and why should we be studying? What sorts of authors should we be studying? And that sort of comes up to something that's used in films a lot, although it shouldn't be, which is the Bechdel test. That's sort of a test to see, is this movie feministic? Is it not? Like, we've talked so much about these themes today, but what this episode has actually been about is what type of authors and what types of books and what types of texts should we be promoting to children at younger ages? Mm -hmm. Should we be studying it in school? All of that. And I think that's something very important that we should circle back to as we start to end this pod.
Yes, yeah, so I personally believe that it's a matter of for certain authors, such as William Shakespeare. Yes, his works were very controversial and did not portray the best messages, but given in his time, he, as you said, he was quite futuristic. So you cannot exactly completely shame him for having those uh, ideals and mm -hmm. those jokes in his literature. However, it's, I think it's more a matter of what we choose to study from the author if we have to study them at all. I completely agree. And it's this idea of there's a finite amount of authors we can study. So if we continue to study Shakespeare, that means that a modern American or British author will not have that chance. So sometimes we just need to focus on the modern day problems that unfortunately cannot be reflected through authors like Shakespeare's work. I think kind of adding on to Maha's point, it's really important that the, um, the characters in the stories that the author portrays don't necessarily have to have the same problems as us, mm -hmm. but have to be relatable in a certain sense. They have to share some kind of traits with us or address some world issues that can still have a link today. I think through and through, when we study these authors in school, we need to look at what are the impacts and what are the actual messages that these authors are portraying. Because like with Shakespeare, we can talk about all his changes and all his new types of writing, etc. But at the end of the day, what we're studying is what is actually the messages behind his works. And I think that we need to bring that into context for all authors we study. I completely agree. I think that the main thing is as time goes on, there'll be new generations, there'll be new authors and novels to read. But I think that even how a novel was written in the 20th century, for example, uh, George Orwell's dystopian novel in 1984, is already becoming a uh, sort of a classic. I think it's important that as time goes on, we have to exactly set and sort of decide on what novels portray the messages that we want to to sort of represent as society because you know in a hundred years we will be and the novels that happen and are about today will be the new classics i think that if we can make that change and set that standard then we can definitely at least help the future from now right and this notion of to read or not to read as long as we emphasize the important context as iman said of reading and reading modern day authors as well as contextualized olden day authors that's the most important thing in schools. I mean, I think if we all bring this back to the beginning, to read or not to read, I think after today, the answer is definitely look at what you're reading. <laughs> but thank you for listening to another episode of Dialogue Central.